on those occasions, try to bring into our midst somebody who's got something interesting and challenging to say about, uh, about things that are happening in our world. And we couldn't have anyone better than Rosie Boycott. Uh, Rosie Boycott is the chair of the London Food Board. And uh, come on in. And, um, and I'm really, really thrilled to welcome her here tonight. Rosie was appointed chair of the London Food Board by the mayor, by Boris Johnson. And that came as something of a surprise to me, I have to tell you. Because <laughs> uh, she's not a conservative. Um, and, but it was his, it, it, it speaks well of him that he recognised that um, there couldn't be anyone better to help improve Londoners' access to healthy, locally produced and affordable food. Now, I've known Rosie for many years, and many in this room will know her, who basically were young feminists back in the 70s. Puts an age on us. But Rosie Boycott was this incredible figure for all of us, who uh, founded Spare Rib, which was a feminist magazine at the time. And most of us kind of learned our feminism by reading this incredible um, uh, um, you know, piece of media at the time, which was incredibly controversial, created great furor, got all the newspapers up in arms, and it was a fabulous sort of kind of inflammatory and wonderful um, way of raising the issues about the position of women in our society at a time where you know it's almost unfathomable to, to, to remember, you know that. You know, the percentage of women in the academy was minimal. It's not great today, but you know, it was still it was absolutely minimal. You know, in the legal profession, you know, there was it was you know seven percent. Um, you know, across the, the whole um, uh, vista, it was hard to see women, and women were clearly being told what their place in society was. And out of uh, the mist came this fabulous woman who uh, found a way of putting all of this in print and basically campaigning and championing the cause of women. She was incredibly young, in fact, you know, almost in school clothes, um, but she, um, um, that start meant that she was really a great, became, went on to be a really great writer and broadcaster. She was the first woman uh, female editor of a British daily newspaper. And how right was that? That was perfect, I mean, given that you had set up Virago, you know, the, the spare rib. But she also had set up Virago. She was one of the founding members of Virago, the Greek publishing house with Carmen Khalil and so on, and she was on its first board. Um, she was the editor of The Independent on Sunday, but she also was the editor of The Independent, of The Daily Express, at a time when it had a little a moment in the sun before it kind of went back downhill again. Um, she was also the editor of Esquire, um, and she, she has really ranged far and wide in the, in the world of our media. She owns a small holding in Somerset. Um, she's married to a really delightful and lovely lawyer whom I'm very fond of. And she's written a book about her experiences on this farm called Spotted Pigs and Green Tomatoes, A Year in the Life of Our Farm. She developed Capital Growth, which was launched last year by the mayor. And the idea was that it was to boost the whole business of growing your own food. Um, and it created two, over 2,000 community food growing spaces um, by 2012. I mean, some of them in the most um, extraordinary places. Hundreds of small spaces that were cultivated in a diverse, you know, in a diverse way, on the banks of canals and schools, on the on roofs all over the place, including the roof of the South Bank, uh, you know, the the, the art centre, uh, in private gardens that were open to the community, in public parks, all kinds of places, 
and you know, Michelle Obama, eat your heart out. We haven't managed to get you into the garden of number 10 yet, but no doubt that will happen before long. Um, but the, basically, that program of, of cultivating and growing food um, in, in the city was um, awarded the Royal Horticultural Society's commendation last year for its success in getting communities growing and has launched a competition to encourage primary age kids to grow food. Lots of children who just didn't know that a potato came from underneath the earth. Uh, children who didn't know, you know, what, what the source of fruit was and so on. She writes and speaks regularly about the importance of food in improving health and in reducing the carbon emissions which could cause uh, climate change. She's here tonight talking about food. She's my great colleague on um, Women of the World, a great sort of event thing that we do every year, and so it gives I mean, good cause to meet her regularly, which I love. But here tonight, she's come to talk to us about the importance of food. Thank you, thank you very much, Elena. That was an extremely um, lovely introduction, and I'm now probably not be able to live up to it. But um, uh, yes, food has become my uh, my sort of new life's work. Um, I'll hope by the end of what I want to try and tell you, which is a roundup of a lot of things to do with food. But basically, the title is the market failure of food. Because I think if we try to look at it from an economic point of view, we start to see a rather different and rather interesting picture. Um, but uh, I've done that. I've, I do a lot of work with kids who don't have enough to eat, with uh, food banks, with things that are in our society that are just frankly quite appalling. Um, and I see how much you know social justice and food go really hand in hand, and it, it, it is equally social justice if someone is very, very overweight, as indeed they are if it's a kid going to school having had a bag of crisps who's showing up to the doctor later with rickets or falling asleep in class or not being able to concentrate or getting ADHD, all of these things that come from diet and being marked out from that point of view. It's, um, it's a very curious thing how we take, uh, we take food for granted. Um, and Elena talked about spare ribbon. I haven't actually got this in this talk, but I'll take this very little diversion. I had a slogan then, which I used to say, don't cook, don't type, and you'll get ahead, girls. Um, <laughs> now, uh, neither of those things are at all true. Uh, they were really a bad idea. Um, I, I mean, I never learned to type, but I cannot imagine not being able to type. And ditto now, I can't imagine not being able to cook. Um, but again, okay, it was true, it was a kind of slavery. We also had a... We made a tea towel for use in the kitchen, which you very rarely went to, um, and it said, um, first you sink into his arms, then your arms end up in his sink. Uh, it was a fantastic tea cloth. <laughs> I have to say, times have changed in my life, because at the moment we're just funding printing a tea cloth for every school in London, which in fact sets out the new school food standards. So I'm not sure what that says about my trajectory, but anyway, here we go, and it's really, really nice to be here on a nice Friday night. So, um, I just want to say that I think food is the biggest market failure, market failure of our time around us now, and I hope I can convince you of that by the end of this, um, because we all think we live in a world where food is incredibly plentiful, a world where the majority of us have enough to eat. Um, in the West, here in America, in Europe, we have foodie writers wishing on about how we live in a food revolution. But actually, if you think about it, that's a revolution that's defined by Whole Foods, by Barra Market, by the kind of posh restaurants where A.A. Gill goes every week. 
um, by the hours devoted on TV to MasterChef and the Bake Off and the this and the that. Uh, it's very easy to think that we somehow live in a world which is feeding us in the right kind of way. But actually, we do live in a revolution, but it's the one we don't want to see. And it's taking places under our noses, and it's turning over millennium of evolution in the way that we eat, and it's resulting in generations of children and generations of young adults who are developing type 2 diabetes in their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s, developing different kinds of obese, uh, diseases related to obesity. The doctor I was speaking to the other day who is in Thanet was saying, the obese epidemic among teenage girls has mean 15-year-olds are turning up with the bodies of 55-year-olds because of the strains and the stresses that are happening around them. Um, there's 7 billion of us around about that on this planet. Some 1.5 billion of us don't have enough to eat, but 1.7 billion of us are now eat too much. That means nearly half of the world's eating habits are screwed up, are wrong, for whichever way. We chuck out, not the question of what you hear about in the Daily Mail, about what's in your fridge. You want to look at the global food system, because we live on one planet where food is concerned, and that's very important to remember. We chuck out 40% of the food that we grow. 50% of the world's grain goes into animals to then feed us. This is grain that is absolutely great for us to eat. I mean, indeed, lentils are probably are the highest source of perfect protein for the human body. But in fact, we shove this through a cow and we then eat it. Um, if the world ate like the citizens of the USA, we would need three planets to feed those people. And we've lived like this for the last 40 years in, in an economic system. Well, we've lived for longer than 40 years, but very much where the food system is concerned. It's been a system that only values profit, profit over any worth. We have ceased, ceased completely to ask. I mean, I think this is in a general sense, but I'm applying it to food. We've ceased completely to ask what's a good society, We've lived on an idea that if we can drive down prices and keep driving them down, then the market will supply what we need. Food has been the most critical part of this economic drive to the bottom, and today it is literally killing us. Because to keep the coffers of the giant multinationals nicely topped up, a growing number of us are literally eating ourselves to death. I mean, not actually a growing number, a huge number of us. But malnutrition and obesity are actually two sides of very much the same coin, because they're both products of rampant capitalism and inequalities. But despite the evidence and the mounting health costs, our politicians continue to suck up to the food industry, giving them responsibility deals in lieu of legislation, caving in all across the world when they fight back over anything. I mean, just think of Michael Bloomberg, for instance, who comes up with an idea of limiting the size of a giant soda. I mean, please. Uh, and he's, he's not allowed to do it. The same sorts of things have happened in Brazil and in a lot of South American countries. People, health departments have put forward ideas and they're immediately cut off at the knees. I will come back possibly to a, a Michelle Obama later on, but I think it's worth just thinking of what she said when she first went into the White House. I'm going to take on the food industry. I am going to take on the food industry on behalf of America's children. And in fact, within three years, that word food industry got dropped in favor of let's plant gardens and have exercise, which is sort of exactly what the Coca-Cola Corporation tells us to. They backed away because of the lobbying power. 
So it is actually, it's a catastrophe of extraordinary consequences because if you apply the race to the bottom in terms of t-shirts and clothes, you end up with Primark, which I don't like, but I'm not here to talk about Primark. But if you, uh, it's a disaster for the planet, but it's a different kind of disaster. But in the food world, it means an ever-increasing supply of non-nutritious, addictive, sugar and salt-laden products, which are cheap and plentiful. They cause obesity, heart attack, cancer, stroke, diabetes, bad joints, ill health, and in extreme cases as well, social exclusion and multiple health mental health problems. Because the, giant, the domination of the giant multinationals resulted in corporations that are so large that no governments can even begin to get near them or rein them in, or even land a punch on their noses. Their lobbying power is such that even while the weight of medical evidence piles up relentlessly, our government offers supermarkets. I mean, I was talking to the person in charge of obesity of the government. I said, what was your strategy? They said, we have a three-point strategy. One is education. We tell people how much salt it is, and we try and encourage people to lower salt levels. We ask the, the, the food corporations to behave responsibility, and we pass it down to the local era. Now, if you applied that to any other illness, this wouldn't work at all. Because the goal is simple that we value profit over health in any way. So the food industry's great challenge is always that they have to make us eat more, or they have to make expensive products out of increasingly cheaper material. In an ideal world for them, they'll do that both at the same time. Because we are also ideal consumers, because we spend most of our lives overeating, and then we spend the last part of our lives dealing with the problem that the overeating has caused. And as a society where food's concerned, we've learned to accept what's normal, accept as normal what is abnormal. Human physiology was formed something like 500,000 years ago, but in the last 40 years, mostly in the last 30, we have completely distorted it. Um, we continue to marvel at the efficiency and brilliance of the food system, which, along with starting to kill off its own golden goose, is also destroying its own ecosystem. Agribusiness and food production account for now over 30% of global emissions. That is the largest single sector driving climate change. And yet, if you think of the topics of discussion, I mean, I've been to quite a lot of the big climate change conferences, food gets a sort of sidebar. It isn't the main thing. It's transport. It's emissions. It's energy. Food is the really big one. Um, 70% of all the potable water in the world goes into food production now. The soils in Africa are now so weak that they're from overuse and the farmland so deforested that African soil often blows all the way across to South America. And, the, and yet, as I was saying to Helena, at the meetings that you have about climate change emissions, food is not there. Now, in the UK, we spend $196 billion on food and on non-alcoholic drinks every year. But astonishingly, out of that actual farming, i.e. the growing of food and the rearing of animals, only accounts for 4.6% of it. The rest is completely absorbed by the business of food, the processors, the marketers, the packagers, the advertisers, and the transporters. We, the consumers, are spending a fortune on food, but less than 5% is getting to the people who actually grow it, which is kind of weird. Of course, there are other ways to eat that don't involve the middlemen, because in the end, we're not doing that. We're all actually working for the food producers and the supermarkets. But you walk through any city street, and our, the smells of the sugars and the fats are everywhere. We never, never need to feel hungry in our open food store of a city. 
Governments follow the industry doctrine that it's down to each of us to exercise control and therefore have free choice. But, but do we? Do we really have free choice? If you lack education, you can't cook, and you're short of money, the chances are you're going to buy the first thing that comes to hand that tastes delicious, makes you, even if only for a moment, feel full and good. Our government used to spend 75 million a year on the change for life, which is about how you can swap different foods. Now they spend 40 million. By comparison, the food industry spends a billion a year marketing food to us. And the supermarkets, for instance, they have to put fruit and veg out the front of the supermarket so that actually they lull us into believing this is actually a proper food store. I wonder how much evidence we need before we start to change. In the Middle East, where we have the fastest type 2 diabetes growth on the planet, Gatter now pays its citizens in gold for every kilo they lose. It's apparently one of the most successful schemes in the world, which is kind of depressing. In London, because of food, the life difference in, difference in life expectancies is really shaming. Kensington and Chelsea, the average is 91 to 93. In Tahan, it's, it's 71. Um, yes, you could say how much can be put down to food, in my view, a lot. But the, the effects of dad, bad diet, even on my generation, is huge. But its effects on our children and young adults, who have known nothing else, is a catastrophe. But food's really funny stuff. You know, when I first joined Boris's team as the chair of the food board, I was regarded with indifference at best and hostility at worst. It was that bloody woman who wants to grow carrots. But I run a small family, so I did know quite a lot about food. I knew enough to know it was really important from the point of view of health and social justice and the environment. But that was only a fraction of what I think I've learned today. I do really now believe that food is probably the most, one of the most crucial issues of our time, both from a health point of view and an environmental one. In America, apparently 16 people an hour die from a food-related illness every hour, every day. But we don't have a solution, and politicians don't have solutions, because they like simple things. That's all politically we can cope with. I mean, we think that smoking was tricky to handle, but actually, smoking's really easy. Cigarettes are bad, don't smoke them. Okay, we create a culture where you don't smoke. But it took 50 years before people knew, without doubt, that smoking was related to cancer, caused cancer, before we got a warning on a packet. 50 years. That was just lobbying. And by the way, all those lobbyists now work for the food companies. The facts that come home daily to us are one in seven hospital patients in the UK are diabetic, costing the NHS 10 billion a year. 3.8 million of us have diabetes. One in three of us is overweight. One in four of us is clinically obese. 37% of 11-year-olds are overweight or obese. We are officially one of the most unhealthy countries in the world. The adults of the last four generations have ensured that the current generations of kids are going to die 10 years earlier, the first time in known history that the steady march of progress is going to be reversed. But living with diet-related diseases isn't also just a question of shopping for outsized clothes. It means, you know, we know it's heart trouble, it's bad skin, it's amputation of limbs. It's a massive cost to the health system. And it means hospitals, I know, you know, my local hospital in Taunton, where I live half the time, they've just spent half of a year's budget enlarging doorways, making bigger bets. And it, these are the things that actually we don't think about very much when we think about the aisle of the supermarket stopped, stuck, stuck with junk food. If I was talking about cancer or about AIDS, there'd be a huge outcry. People would do something about it. Um, so, 
what's, what's going on though? I mean, it, it's something very weird about food. So if, I mean, Coca-Cola and the government will say to us, it's self-responsibility, it's up to you and me. We can all control what we eat. But actually, if self-responsibility and knowledge was all it took, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. Um, we aspire, you know, I mean, there's, we aspire to extreme thinness, as advocated by fashion and reinforced at every turn by celebrity. But in reality, practically all of us, me included in a huge way, struggle with the pounds. We see people who are kind of hugely fat, wobbling their way along, and we think, we think of that, that's the problem, and we distance ourselves from it. But actually, we shouldn't stop distancing itself from it because we have now come, as doctors say, we've come to accept a new normal. We've accepted that when we look back at pictures of kids in, say, the war, where they're wonderful and skinny and you can see their ribs, we think that's thin. Actually, that's normal. We now accept those extra layers everywhere. The subject of weight, though, is so all-pervasive that the notion that half the population is on a permanent diet is regarded as okay instead of actually downright weird. Um, last year, while I was um, waiting in a passport queue at uh, Kennedy Airport late one night, and it was a really long queue, and I got into conversation with the guy next to me, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Los Angeles, and I'm going to join a cruise ship. I said, gosh, you don't look like the kind of guy who goes on a cruise ship. And he said, actually, I have, I, it's my job, because our company has worked out that people put on a pound and a half a day on a cruise ship. And so on the last three days of the cruise, I sell diets. <laughs> and the diets last for six months and they cost a thousand dollars. I said, are you a big company? He said, yeah, we're really big and we're really growing. And it is just, and it was, and you just think this is, this is the way we deal with it. It's like the NHS saying, let's have a million get bariatric, you know, gastric bands fitted. Uh, it's like the fact that uh, Heights owns Weight Watchers. Nestle's own, everyone owns their low fat. It's the poacher turned game people. But, you know, are, are we, as, as the politicians and the food companies, are we all weak-willed? Um, go back, you know, 30 years, very, very few people were obese. Go back 50 years, and virtually no one was. We were smaller. For women, we were size 10 and 12, that was the normal. Today, it's 14 to 60. And we ate three meals a day with tea thrown in. The illnesses we worried about were not self-made by our own apparent willingness to consume gigantic amounts of food. Indeed, until the food industry started to address the situation, around the time that we were finding spare rib, by the way, most of us didn't eat unless we were actually sitting at a table and someone had cooked a meal. But that simple fact represented a big challenge because as mass manufacturing took over, it was very easy to think about how I might sell someone a new jumper or an extra thing, gadgets, you know. But how do you make someone eat when they're not hungry? How do you then make someone eat outside the confine of three meals a day? But it was deeply easy to do because you just pull a huge army of chemists together and you find out foods that override the full button. I heard an absolutely extraordinary story the other day from someone called Christine Tacon, who is the government's ombudsman for, she pleases the food industry now. And before that, many years ago, she used to work for Mars and she was telling one day, Mars decided they were going to introduce M&Ms to Britain. This is maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And they were building a new factory to manufacture M&Ms. And Christine was walking around it, and she noticed a sort of locked door with one of those, you know, skull and crossbones things, which implies what you have on farms, so it's something toxic. And she said, what's that? And the guy said, it's, it's butyric acid. And she said, what's butyric acid? And she, he said, 
It's what we put in M&Ms to stop you feeling sick when you've eaten too many. And we think we're not cynical. Um, so you combine all these things, and I can eat a cake from beginning to end if, if I want to. I can eat crisps, I can do all that thing. Then you describe, destroy the, con the concept of food at mealtime. So you have a snack culture, which means that you eat all the time, whenever you like. We live now in a society you never need to be hungry again. You can eat in your car, you can eat in the bathtub, you can eat everywhere. And whole aisles, for instance, are stuffed with crisps, which are sort of essentially a kind of meaningless food. So it, this all exploded, as I say, in about the 1980s, just as women were getting into the workplace. It was a great and easy thing to kind of exploit. We're too busy, we're going to have convenience food, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have a snack culture, you don't have to cook again, you can have a microwave. And as the whole thing exploded, we were able to buy a lot more consumer goods. So what happened? The big thing that happened and why politics and food became meshed in a way that now I think it's almost impossible, or we should know what Helena thinks, almost impossible to pull apart was that 1970, we spent around about 30% of our income on food. Give or take a bit, round about that. By the start of the 80s, by the middle of the 80s, that was down to 10%. And it was that 20% which said, you can go on holiday, you can have a flat screen telly, you can buy 75 shirts. It produced our consumer boom, which could really never have happened if the food companies hadn't driven down the price of food that way. And once you drive the price of food down, how on earth do you get it back up again? That is something I think about a lot, and I have to tell you, I don't really have an answer. Um, but, sorry, I'm now going on and on. Um, no. <laughs> okay. So, but by the, by the time we get to the 21st century, you can see doctors getting really alarmed about the rise in diabetes and obesity in adults, but most particularly in kids. All the evidence now suggests that if a child is fat at five, they're gonna be fat as an adult. There's almost, it's almost an unbreakable sort of chain. Your body's starting to react. Um, there was a commissioned survey by the Diet and Nutrition Survey of Young Children published in 2013 that found that 75% of babies aged 4 to 18 months were eating too much, even at that point. But breastfeeding is still a rarity. In fact, in this country now, the recommendation of all the science that's now learned about the <coughs> amazingness of breast milk only 1% of women breastfeed to six months, which is the, the target. Now, again, this is a huge like, social problem. How do we do this? How do we work this? It's very, very tricky. But I could, go, I could go on for hours about breast milk, but I'll just say one really interesting thing about it is that babies get a sugar point. We all get a sugar point. We all got one when we were little. And that is the point at which we think something is just satisfyingly nicely sweet. And we, if it gets sweeter, it's yucky. A baby who's breast milk, breast fed breast milk, gets that sugar point much lower than a baby who's fed formula. And that is absolutely proven now. Whatever they do with the formula. Formula, of course, is mostly pushed by Nestle's. Nestle's not one of the most charming companies in the world. They only have one interest, which is Let's get in there and get you onto formula from the beginning. Let's tell you formula is as good as. Let's also supply you on the way out of hospital with, you know, your packet of everything and enough free stuff. So, without being aware of it, young mums are in the tray of processed food and so is that baby from the beginning. And that baby is not going to be as healthy. Um, so, 
I know food's addictive. I mean, I'm an addict. I mean, Helena didn't mention it, maybe because she was being polite. I also wrote a book when I was 31 about being an alcoholic. Um, so I've been addicted to almost everything, and I know lots of things are very difficult. But actually, sugar and salty flavours are addictive to an addictive personality. Um, I'm not addicted to broccoli. I'm not addicted to cabbage. I really like them, but I'm not addicted. I don't eat a piece of broccoli and shit, I'm going to have some more. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. Nature never designed food to be like that. I have a theory about how, about how food was made, and that food is the most extraordinary stuff. Food essentially is made of sunlight. That's all it is. It's the sun making leaves work, which either get eaten by cattle and then fed to us or whatever. The food that's rubbish is made in the dark. Sorry, that's just a complete aside. But um, the big problem with it is that we're told not to eat so much, and of course that's right. And one Mars bar or one can of Coke isn't going to hurt very much. But five cans of Coke and four Mars bars every day is going to hurt a great deal. So what happens, and I think it's the same thing that we do now in the way that we demonise poverty in this society, we say it's your fault, it's your responsibility. And yet, they're spending a billion pounds on advertising, so they must be doing something. So there's a very, very complex thing that goes on, because most politicians sitting around cabinet tables, on the whole, tend to be rich, middle class, nice children, well fed, probably got a nanny at home cooking nice meals. They don't kind of get it. And they're not sympathetic. So it's the same thing. You, you go back and you say, it's your fault. So in America recently, the um, Congress declared that pizza was a vegetable because this has happened on Michelle Obama's watch too, so that they could ensure that it went into the American food, school food systems. And while I spent the day yesterday with Tesco's, and you know, Tesco's have like, really tried in a kind of way. They've taken sweets away from the checkout. And they refuse to say how much money they've lost, but they acknowledge they have lost money. But it's absolutely nothing. So the environment, in, I mean, Tesco's is a good example, in which we make food choices, especially in poor areas of the city where I spend a lot of time, is very, very unhealthy. I mean, it's... It's about impulse, it's about a quick thing, and it's about incredible cheapness. There's a borough in London that recently told a guy who wanted to start a fish and chick, um, a fast food chicken thing, set up near the school, you have a guaranteed audience. Uh, that's terrifying. So, in the ideas of what we might be able to do about it, there's an amazingly interesting woman called Deborah Cohen, who's an American physician, and she's author of something called A Big Fat Crisis. And she, she studied 122,000 registered nurses, and she found that their obesity levels had tripled in 30 years. And what she said at the end of that, she, I don't think you can just say that that many people are irresponsible. She says that we have to take really, really drastic steps. For instance, food should be banned in all shops that aren't food shops. So the sports shop can't sell sweets, and the newsagent can't sell this. She says restaurants should serve single portions. She says supermarkets should have limits on how, I mean, like you should be limited to only spending $40. But actually what's happening in this world, we can't even get a tax on fizzy drinks. So it makes her ideas seem right out there. But 
food-related illnesses, if they carry on in the way that they're going, they are responsible now for more deaths worldwide than any other single thing. Much more. I mean, the world is hysterical about Ebola. Not that I think that that's a light thing, but nobody gets hysterical about what we're eating. Um, look at, you know, look at, look at uh, from an environmental point of view, 30% of the greenhouse gases. Everything at the moment is saying that the food system is in a state of advanced kind of collapse, it seems to me. I mean, it is literally eating itself to death. It is hooked on making profits. I was very sad to see lots of food writers jumping up and saying how brilliant it is to see Tesco's doing badly. Well, actually, the answer is no, because what's coming up underneath it is even cheaper food. And I know, you, I hope, do now know, that to make cheap food, you have to use cheap ingredients, and to keep making profit, you have to sell more and more and more and more of it. Because you can't, you can't start saying, I'm going to make this high end and make more money. It's the other end of the market. Margaret Chan, who's the Director General of the WHO, she gave a fantastic speech in New York a couple of years ago. She says, the high prevalence of obesity is the telltale sign that something terrible has gone wrong in the social environment in which people make their personal choices. It tells us the root causes are not being addressed. Prevention depends upon population-wide measures. She said that what we're seeing now is the tip of the iceberg towards a health catastrophe in which the world has to manage millions and millions of people suffering from really long-term, very chronic illnesses. And we have to think about prevention. But the root causes, she noticed, lies outside the control of the health sector. And lots of countries have made efforts, as I said, about legislating. I mean, Australia has the USA, Norway, Turkey, but they get hit by lawsuits immediately. Even the American president, as I say, caved in when he, he said this thing about pizza and the same with, with ketchup. And she, Margaret Chan, she doesn't believe that obesity is a failure of personal will. She says it's a failure of political will at the highest level. So, if we accept that the food system is failing us, what are we, what are we going to do? Um, what we're doing at the moment in London is that we have selected two boroughs and we are attempting to, in five years, turn around the entire food system there. Our thinking is that we can't wait until something happens to the food companies or at some point some government has the balls to say, OK, we're going to stop all advertising to children. We're going to take all sugary cereals off the lower shelves. We're going to ban the crisps aisles. We're going to really start banning and changing the fast food outlets because that's where a great deal of the damage happens. This isn't going to happen. So you're left with how do you educate and how do you change people? It's worth trying because if we all ate well and we ate in a healthy way, we would all go back probably to eating three meals a day. We'd eat round tables. We'd eat with our families. Um, there was a school I was in in Southwark a couple of weeks ago, and the headmistress said that they spent the first six weeks of all the new intakes, uh, arrival in school over lunchtime, teaching them how to use a knife and fork because 80% of them had never seen a knife and fork when they arrived in school because they had just been fed snacks on the edge of their bed. Um, 
The food companies know this is happening. They're battening down the hatches. They're chucking out little bones in every direction. Oh yes, we've lowered sugar, we've lowered salt, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other. Where, you know, like St. Hughes at the moment, collects vouchers so that uh, they can, you can put a sports kit into your school. There's all sorts of things like this going on. is isn't changing anything. That's, that's the bottom line, that's the reality. It's not changing a thing. So, Helena, generally, I think, is, you know, favour to you as a politician to, um, to change things. <laughs> because it's a, it's a huge catastrophe. Uh, food is, I believe, a human right. The right to decent food, we should all have it. Um, and we don't. And it's something worth fighting for. <laughs>